You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. As we enter today's teaching, we are in Luke chapter 19, the middle of verse 30. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the gospel of Christ. Through the benefits of DNA, I have loud children. I have no idea where it comes from. I really, I really don't. Every time we park in in a parking garage, whether it's in downtown Maryville or Knoxville or elsewhere, especially my youngest two, as soon as we get out of the car, my children will yell at the top of their lungs, Echo! Because they like to hear the echo. And you hear the reverberations two, three seconds later. And every time that happens, I feel an echo in my own life saying, guys, be quieter. That's what echoes do, right? They're reverberations. Reverberations across time, a little like deja vu. You hear a repeated sound that came from earlier. Might be loud or soft, might take a long time or a short time, but regardless, an echo is a reminder of something that has happened in the past. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is such an echo of so many Old Testament stories, so much so that I won't have time to even remunerate them all this morning. But I want you to see that these are reverberations. The story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem is a reverberation of many Old Testament stories and prophecies. So today, let's look at how Jesus is an echo of a king who is poor. He's also an echo of a king who receives worship. And lastly, he is the echo of a king who fights for what belongs to him. 
Jesus is the echo of a king who is poor, a king who receives worship, and a king who fights for what belongs to him. So first, the echo of a king who is poor. Verses 28 through 40 is really an unusual story because the action starts as if Jesus is traveling alone in verse 28, but we realize he's not. By the time we get to verse 28, 29 and 30, when he's talking to disciples. Now, previously in Luke, the disciples have been named plenty, but here they're not named. Why is that? I think it's because the action centers on Jesus' kingship and all the things that go to surrounding proving, in Luke's mind, that Jesus is a king. First thing they do is they do what Jesus tells them to do. He gave instructions to find a colt that is tied up. He's never been ridden, and to go borrow it, which is what they wind up doing in verses 32 and verse 33. In this interaction, Jesus tells them to tell these people who own the colt, the Lord needs it. And magically, they use the term, I kind of picture it kind of like a Jedi knight, the Lord needs it. And all of a sudden, they give it to him, and they bring it back to Jesus. In that time, riding a colt or a donkey into a major city like Jerusalem was a kingly act. You see, Jesus could have just kept walking. He's been walking everywhere else already so far, but he is intentionally choosing a symbolic act, something that Solomon does in 1 Kings 1, something that David does in 2 Samuel 13, something that Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets, prophesies that the Messianic king would do, ride a donkey into his kingship. Jesus is an echo of these Old Testament stories. And to heighten the drama, this is exactly how the crowds receive him in verse 38. Notice what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is an itinerant rabbi who's not even really been trained in a formal rabbi system, and he's from Nazareth. This is like somebody from Greenback parading down Times Square in New York City, and the people hail him as the president of the United States. This is strange, but this is precisely what he does. He's saying, I'm the king, through this symbolic action. And yet, he's a poor king. How? Because he's got to borrow the donkey. In fact, five times in the passage, the word tie or untie is used, I think, to give emphasis to the fact that this colt really doesn't belong to Jesus. And they have to tie it, and they have to untie it, and then bring it to Jesus, and kind of put Jesus on him. Jesus has to borrow the donkey, even though he's the king. Do we really like weak kings or poor kings? Charles I, the king of England in the middle of the 1600s, is another echo of seemingly a weak king. little history lesson for you, because who doesn't love history? Okay, most of you? Okay, still, we're going to go on. The monarchy was becoming increasingly popular, unpopular back in the 1600s for a lot of reasons. Uh, some of those reasons were that Charles I had made political miscalculations and he thought he had more military strength than he really had. But other reasons he was unpopular is that he wasn't necessarily a physically impressive guy. Back then, kings would still get near the front lines and even go to war in the 1600s, and he wasn't really a man of physically impressive stature. And... Like another famous king in the 1900s, he had a stutter. He didn't speak for the first many years of his life. And because of that, people viewed him as kind of ineffectual and weak. He was abhorred by parliament and he was hated by the Scots to the north. And all of these things led to the English Civil War 
in which the Puritans ultimately won against the crown, and there was no king or queen in England for 1,700 years during the protectorate of England. And ultimately, Charles I was tried for treason and executed. And the 1,000-year reign of the British monarchy, from the invasion of the Normans to today, Charles I was the only king or monarch executed while still in office. It turns out we don't like weak kings. I think a part of my life's work, a part of what I need to do for myself, and one of the things I try to implore for you is to try to get us to admit that we really don't want a king. And we really don't want a weak king. Because if we could admit that, we might actually begin to allow Jesus to change us. But often we don't really want it, and we have a hard time admitting it. Sometimes Jesus is an enigmatic king that I don't understand, as he is with his disciples here. I'd like Jesus to give me more clear answers sometimes with more clear leadership. Sometimes Jesus is borrowing a donkey when I would love for him to kick some booty and take some names and deal with my enemies and make my life better when I'm struggling or stressed. Sometimes I'd like Jesus to get in the back seat and not order me around so much. I'd like to be in control of the future since obviously I know what's best. In fact, I'd very much like Jesus to not act like a king at all. Many of us, many of us in the Bible Belt will intellectually agree that we're a Christian and that can sometimes give us kind of a tribal, yeah, I'm on the Christian team, and still go through life not really allowing Jesus to be the king. Either we don't want him to be the king at all, We don't really want him to be in control of our lives, or we don't really want a poor king. Well, it looks like a weak king, a king that we might be embarrassed by. And bizarrely, this king, because he really is the king, doesn't mind being worshipped. He doesn't mind being worshipped, which is ultimately what we are asked to do. This leads to our second point this morning. Jesus is an echo of a king who receives worship. Jesus is the echo of a king who receives worship. Because he's the king, he receives adulation that's due him. In verse 35, after the disciples have secured the donkey, they put cloaks on it. And then in verse 36, the crowd spreads the cloaks before Jesus on the road. This is precisely what the soldiers did for King Jehu in our Old Testament reading and 2 Kings 9. This is in the the northern kingdom by this point, which was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And King Ahab was a wicked king of Israel. And Jehu's this military commander who is trying to wipe out idolatry in Israel. And the people know that Jehu, as this military commander, is supposed to do this. He's tasked by the Lord to do this. And so what the people do is they take off their cloaks and they spread it before Jehu and he walks over it. And this was the claim that Jehu was king and not just the military commander. And Jesus is an echo of this story in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You see, spreading a cloak before someone was a way to declare fealty. In that time, people still had inner garments, but if they took off their outer garment, it was a way to exhibit social shame. It was like you were naked in that time, and they were saying, I'm willing to be humiliated for the sake of the worship of this person who is so much greater than me. And they're worshiping. They spread their cloaks, and Jesus tramples over them. 
The crowd also extols Jesus, not just for being the king, but the king who will bring peace in verse 38. It's also the thing Jesus weeps for in verse 42 when he said, Jerusalem, I long to show you peace. This is what ancient kings did. They were the leaders in the military commands. They actually went to war. They were at the front of the battle. And so if a king had secured the peace, that means he had won the victory. And he was to be praised for the one who brought peace. And that praise is precisely what scandalizes the religious leaders in verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. For Jesus to claim and to receive worship that he was the Messianic king was to be a blasphemer, essentially, was to claim that he was God. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 get your people in order. You're just an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. And Jesus goes, nope, if they don't praise me, even the rocks will praise me. Even the temple stones will praise me because Jesus is the creator of everything. Jesus is the echo of a king who receives worship, who wants worship. And isn't it the cry of the human heart to have something bigger than ourselves to which we can spread our cloaks, to which we can humble ourselves and say, that thing is greater than me. That thing is more important than me. That is what I will devote my life to. I remember in seminary getting into a long conversation with an old friend from high school and more of an acquaintance, and we had gone our separate ways. In high school, we were both Christians, and towards the end of high school, I felt called to pastoral ministry, and so I went to seminary and trained to be a pastor, and through college, he had actually lost his faith. He had renounced being a Christian and began to study physics, and he reached out to me originally over Facebook, even back then, and he wanted to talk, and one of the big reasons he wanted to talk was to wonder Why was I still a Christian when obviously in his mind it had been disproven by modern science? So he wanted to reach out to me. Now, originally I I was skeptical of the conversation because I was like, man, there's no, this guy's just trying to get me in a gotcha, right? But he was earnest and he was kind. So I thought, well, this will be a good conversation to get into. So we began uh, a several weeks long conversation to which I began to explain my faith and what I believe. More on next week when I talk about the historicity of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, if it wasn't really real, then we're all fooling ourselves here. But eventually we got onto his turf, the turf of physics. Now, I don't know that much about physics, but I took it in high school, and my dad's an engineer, so I just pretend like I went to Holiday Inn Express last night. So, you know, I went I know a little bit about physics, enough to begin to talk to him about the second law of thermodynamics. And I said, a lot of physicists believe that, hey, you know, because the second law of thermodynamics includes entropy, that energy is always getting more disordered over time, then that must mean there was an original perfect order. This is what a lot of Christian physicists believe, for instance. And this is where our conversation stopped, and we haven't spoken to this day. He immediately got angry and said, don't you dare talk to me about physics, those laws of thermodynamics are sacred to me. Notice what he didn't say. He, he knew way more about physics than I did. He could have said, no, 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 you're kind of misunderstanding. It's a lot more complicated than that. And these are lots of different things it could mean. And this is why I am an atheist and don't believe in any of that. He could have actually continued to reason with me, but he didn't. He said, those laws are sacred to me. Like he was the priest over the great scientific temple. And we never talked ever again. All of us worship something bigger than ourselves. And my friend worshiped the laws of physics as bigger than himself. 
even though he was a claimed atheist, there was something to which he had to say, I need to spread my cloak and humble myself and give that thing that's greater than me praise. And that's what it was for him. What is it for you? We all give our worship to something, no matter what we believe, Christian or not. We all spread our cloaks before something and humble ourselves and say, that thing gives me meaning. It may be that we rest our worship on a sports team. If those 18 to 20-year-olds don't win, then we're unhappy the rest of the day or the week. It may be that we rest our worship on some celebrity or form of entertainment, and we just continue to doom scroll or binge watch. Maybe that thing will give me meaning. And maybe that we rest our worship on our work. This thing that we give ourselves over to in our whole lives is greater than us, so that we let it dominate our schedules. We spread our cloaks before our work, and we can't say no to it because we give it our worship. It may be that we rest our worship on ourselves. Now, I know what you're thinking. like Dave, you're talking about worshiping something that's greater than ourselves. How could we still worship ourselves if we want to worship something greater than ourselves? And here's, what I, here's how I hear people do it. They'll take some attribute of themselves that is often the best thing about them, whether they're a perfectionist or they're always on time or they're a better listener than other people, and they somehow dissociate that great quality as if it's a separate personality and say, well, that's because I'm such a great listener. And all of a sudden, the listening becomes a separate personality that someone can worship. Or I'm, I'm just such a great public speaker, and all of a sudden, that thing becomes a separate personality with which I worship that is better than myself. All of us have something with which we are spreading our cloaks before. Something greater than ourselves. Something where we make ourselves lower and that something else higher. The question is, what will it be? Will it be a poor, humble king who receives worship because he's perfect but doesn't let it go to his head? He was headed to Jerusalem to die a sacrifice. When you see that Jesus is that king, that he accepts praise for himself, and that's not an arrogant thing, it's the most sensical thing in the world to worship him. Not just on a Sunday, not just when you're feeling it with your emotions, but to actually declare with your whole lives, to spread your cloaks, this is the one to whom I bow down to, that I swear fealty to, with everything. That king will fight for what belongs to him, which is our final point this morning. Jesus is an echo of a king who fights for what belongs to him. Like King Jehu before him, Jesus receives worship. He has his cloak spread before him, and then he goes and clears out a temple. In Second Kings, with Jehu, it was the temple of Baal. With Jesus, it's the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of the one God. In verses 41 through 42, he abruptly stops the worship of himself. He sees Jerusalem and he laments over her, knowing that on the day of the visitation, the day of his visitation, that he will not be received, but he is ultimately going to a public execution. Jerusalem's name even means the Lord is peace. And the, the irony there is Jesus saying, I long to bring you peace, but you would not receive me. You would not receive me as king. Instead, Jesus will become received as a martyr. And even still, Knowing all of that, in verse 45, he still goes and performs a kingly act. The second he gets in Jerusalem, he goes into the center of Jerusalem's civic life, the religious worship of Yahweh in the temple. Like a king, he goes straight to the hot spot, and he acts like he's in charge. 
And he tells everybody else what's what. This guy, who's rarely in Jerusalem, he's telling everybody where they can get off. And he drives out the money changers out of the temple in verses 45 and 46. Now, just a a little bit of background here because it's really important. Uh, Luke is more sparing with the details than Matthew or Mark is. Why is Jesus driving people out of the temple? Is it because they were buying and selling things for the sake of sacrifices? No. That's what they did. They, if you're going to the Jerusalem temple to worship and you were from somewhere else, you needed an animal to kill to make a sacrifice. Well, in Deuteronomy, there's prescriptions for, hey, if you need an animal to sacrifice of whatever price, this is what you do. Jesus wasn't mad about that. He wasn't mad that people bought and sold things for the temple's sake. He also wasn't mad because they seemed to be exploitative. There's no biblical evidence that these people were charging too much than they should have. Rather, what seems to make Jesus mad is the location of this money changing. The location. They were in the outer courts of the temple, which only women and Gentiles could get into. Jewish men could go into the inner courts, and priests and the people of Levi, the tribe of Levi, could get further into the temple, and then the high priest could get even further into the temple on only one day a year. But in these outer courts, only Gentiles and women could go to worship and make sacrifices there. And Jesus, by saying, my house is going to be not a house or a den of robbers, he's saying, look, these people got to worship here, so we can buy and sell, but we just need to do it right out here, and you don't belong in this temple, and he drives them out. It's a location issue. Jesus is trying to protect and to fight for what belongs to him. Ultimately, what belongs to him is worship, as we just saw in the last point. And the center of Israel's worship life was the temple, and that belonged to Jesus as well. This is precisely what Jehu did. This is the echo of what we saw in 2 Kings. And in verse 45, when it says that Jesus drove out the money changers, it's the same word that is often used in Luke to describe Jesus' exorcism ministry when he was driving out demons from people. Essentially, what Jesus is trying to protect against is the superiority of these religious people who thought, man, I'm just, we're just better, so we can do this stuff right out here in the outer courts because these women and these Gentiles, it doesn't really matter if they're worshiping the true Lord or not. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Your superiority, your religious superiority, your racial superiority has no place here. These people get to worship me too. And I will fight for what belongs to me, which is the worship of all people. I know it seems extreme that Jesus would seemingly violently get people out of the temple. In other gospels, it says Jesus fashioned a whip to drive people out. But consider that this is what we do all the time. Whether it's in a healthy way or not, we fight for what belongs to us. So in an unhealthy way, we might get defensive if our character is impugned. So there are ethics rules around the office, and someone is suggesting that we mess it up all the time. And so we get defensive because... Someone is attacking our integrity, so we lash out, we're passive-aggressive, we get angry in our spirit. In this instance, we are fighting for what belongs to us, which is our integrity. You can do this in a healthy way, too. Let's say one of your children is getting bullied at school, for those of you who have school-aged kids, and you work with teachers and administrators to help correct the problem. You're not passive-aggressive, you're not brimming with anxiety, you're not mean, you don't pretend an email is going to solve the problem. Rather, you are resolute, you are unwavering, You are consistent, you are undaunted, and you fight for your kids. We fight for what belongs to us all the time. And as we've seen, Jesus is the true king who gladly receives the worship that is due him. 
And the center of that worship is the temple. And Jesus wants praise from everyone, Gentiles included, women included, and not just Jews. And he will fight in a perfectly righteous way for what belongs to him. That may make us uncomfortable in 21st century America, but in this respect, Jesus is no different than you or me fighting for what belongs to him. Which, if you're a Christian, this should scare you a little bit. Because if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. And sometimes, you and me are the people getting in the way of belonging to Jesus. And Jesus will fight for us, and sometimes with us. Some, not all, some of the pain in our life is caused by the fact that we are trying not to belong to Jesus when we already do, and He is fighting for us. Jesus is an echo of so much of the human story, especially the Old Testament. He's an echo of what we most desire, a king who will give us peace that we can praise, a king that will fight for us. And he's also an echo of what we most desperately don't want, a king who is in charge of us, who controls us. And we find both examples here in the story. The crowd's praising him and the religious leaders plotting to kill him in verse 47. But I often find that you and I are both in the same person. We want a king to solve our problems until we don't. We want a king to worship until we feel pretty good about ourselves. We want a king to fight except when it makes us feel uncomfortable or embarrassed. And all along, Jesus is heading for a unique destination. Sure, he clears the temple, but that's not the final part of the temple narrative in Jerusalem. Ultimately, he purifies the temple worship by being the perfect sacrifice himself. That's how Jesus gets pure worship for him as king. He ultimately becomes the best king by subjecting himself on a cross for us to forgive us our sins and restore us back. A king that would fight for us to the death. He takes ultimate power in worship because he is the king who alone fights the battle and wins through weakness. As one of the great old hymns says, by weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. To the greater degree, we believe that. Or if you're not yet a Christian, if you believe that for the first time, the more you will serve, worship, and honor the one true king. Let me pray. Our Father, you have crowned Jesus King. We look about for false kings. We try to be false kings ourselves. Help us know that Jesus fights for us. And by your Spirit, would you open our eyes and the eyes of our heart to receive him as King and show us areas of our lives where we don't do that, that we may give him greater worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.